May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cute Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of Cute Audio and Cute Archives, preserving the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, Alan Sanaka. Alan is the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center. Um, the Berkeley Zen Center has always been my favorite Zen Center to visit. It's just so neat. And it, uh, you know, it started, I don't know if he and I talk about that. I can't remember because, you know, we talked, you know, a month ago or so. Uh, it started, I mean, I remember going over there, I think in 66 and, it, it wasn't there wasn't a Zen Center yet, but uh, then Mel Mel moved in as the abbot in '67. Not as the abbot, it was just the caretaker, really. And uh, he stayed, and then he held on to that abbotship until not long ago. And Alan, after many years of standing in the wings, <laughs> took over. But listen, Alan has done a lot of things, and you're gonna. You're gonna see that um, uh, he's been he's had uh, a long uh, career in music and uh, in uh, Buddhist peace fellowship and and related uh, uh, engaged Buddhism um, and uh, anyway we talk about all that uh, he's got a book out and uh, I bring that up right away uh, it's called Turning Words transformative encounters with Buddhist teachers. Um, and um, it's an easy read, and it's really neat, uh, and you'll hear about it. He talks, he t tells some of the stories. At some point, I, I took a little note when we were making it. He mentions Rinso-in uh, in Japan, and that's uh, Shunryu Suzuki's Japan temple that uh, his son, Hoitsu, is now the habit of. So, listen, when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give Alan Sanaka a call.
Hi, David. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Ah, good. So, uh, Alan. Uh, yes, hi. Wh- what are you up to? I know you have a new book out, and so I want to hear about that. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I've already read it. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm up to is, um, I mean, mostly what I'm up to is following the practice here at Berkeley Zen Center. Yeah. Uh, I've been Abbott here for a little more than two years, mm-hmm. and I'm still learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am writing. I've got a I'm playing with a band for the first time in since before the pandemic, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, and and I've been teaching uh this semester I've been teaching at Union Theological Seminary. Which oh, is which yeah. is really enjoyable. Yeah. Oh that's good. So wow. very very busy on this end. Yeah. Uh now your book is Turning Words, is that right? Yes, Turning Words Transformative encounters with Buddhist teachers. Yeah. Mostly Buddhist teachers. So, uh, how did it come about? Well, I just started at a certain point of, a few years ago, I started writing down stories of encounters that I had had, things that I went back to again and again um, that had transpired. Uh, between uh, myself and uh, teachers who I heard or that I witnessed. And I just started writing these down, and then I became more thoroughgoing about it and decided I was going to try to make an effort to remember as much as I could while I still have a fairly functional memory and write those (laughs) stories down, and that's what I did. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then it took shape. It took, it sort of took shape as a book, and uh, it evolved from there. Yeah. Hmm. So I was very happy that uh, I I presented it to uh, Shambhala, and uh, I I wasn't expecting. I didn't know what I was expecting. I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know. I wasn't pitching it as I didn't have I don't have an agent and I wasn't pitching it in an intensive way, but they really liked it. So mm-hmm. uh, um, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to to work with them. Mm. And it, it gets out, you know, it it's getting out fairly widely, and um, I like the opportunity to share these stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you, t- can you read us one or tell us one? Or I could tell you one. Yeah. Um, I'd rather tell it than read it. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this lately. Uh, I think one of the stories is uh, at at one point, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago, 
uh, Sojin Roshi, my teacher, was uh, was just kind of musing, reflect, reflecting out loud. He said, well, everything is really going great here at uh, Berkeley Zen Center, uh, but it, all, it could all go just, you know, disappear in a moment. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. You know, uh, the pandemic came and, and everything that we relied on as a rhythm for practice or as a, as a form of practice instantly disappeared. And, uh, all of us had to reconstruct that, including him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And also it happened just to say this happened while well, he had recently been diagnosed <clears throat> with cancer, and so the cancer was was also moving forward. So, yes, things things can go very quickly. Yeah, there's yeah. some things that we feel are really solid. Yeah, you know, not necessarily so. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh Dogen said something like that. I remember, um, and I think about it a lot. Uh, uh, it's something like there's no power on heaven and earth to assure that you'll be alive in, I don't know, the next minute. Right, right. So, so that's, that's one story. There's, there's a lot of stories actually mm-hmm. that started digging around. You know, mm-hmm. one of them, the book starts actually with a story. Uh, about an exchange with my father uh, that goes back to about mm, 1973 or so, uh, which was before I had formally taken up Buddhist practice. You know, I was living a life of an activist, and uh, he came out to visit me uh and actually, he came in during a moment when uh, my first marriage was breaking up, but we kept it a secret from him and my stepmother because we just didn't want to go through <clears throat> a lot of explanations and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, tangled emotions. So my wife and I, who were on, we were on good terms, yeah. uh, but just we didn't feel like we could stay married. Um, so we're driving down, uh, 80, uh, in our, in my car. And I think, I think I was driving and I was driving him and, you know, he turned to me and said, are you happy? Hmm. And I got angry at him. You know, I said, basically, that's not the point to me. Uh, the point is to be useful. Um, you know, and it took me, I think it took me another 40 years to realize that he was actually asking a highly pertinent question. And Mm -hmm. my answer was, um, was only half or less than half right. Mm. Uh, 
you know, I wasn't happy. Uh, and uh, maybe I was useful and maybe I wasn't. But what I feel like I've learned through our practice is that if I can't really be in contact with happiness, then I'm not going to be useful. <laughs> and that that was all. All he wanted was, you know, he wanted a, a sense of fulfillment and joy in my life, which was a wonderfully wonderful thing to wish for his son. Hmm. Yeah. But I, yeah. I couldn't accept it then. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, that's kind of that's where I start. That's where I start the book, actually. Yeah. Right. Um, if if you want to say anything more on the book, please do. I want. I'm, I have another question. Um, there's not a lot more that I think I need to say. I'm uh, I'm really pleased to get it into people's hands and to get feedback. And I've been. I've been getting some feedback and if you know if one wonders how stories transmit truths it's an interesting thing I mean really in a sense these carry some of the uh, they're turning words in the sense that many of the koans that we read are turning words right um, mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm not uh, glorifying these as as koans, but they were they had that function for me, and mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm curious to know if they uh, if they spark anything in in other people, in readers, in friends, and so forth. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll give you some feedback. Um, the one about me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't. I I wasn't a board member. Um, I said that to uh, Lori uh, at a meeting, just a general uh, meeting. Oh, a general meeting in the in the Richard Baker debrief. Yeah. When she yeah. she said. She said. Uh, why aren't you upset or something like that? Right, right. And, and yeah. I, <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, um, I have low uh, standards. Right, <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> yeah, but that was a story I always remembered. Mm-hmm. She told it to me, and you know, it's like that had an impact on me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a time. Uh, yeah, Richard Baker just turned 87 uh, in, in a few days ago. Uh, our just, uh, yeah, two days ago or something. Um, uh-huh. And he's uh, he's uh, he's like the Energizer Bunny. He's still teaching. And <laughs> wow, good for him. Yeah, amazing. Um, well. You know, uh, where does where does this all start? Where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn in December of 1947. Um, 
uh, in the great, great blizzard of 1947, actually. Um, and, uh, spent my first couple of years in Brooklyn and then we moved out to, uh, Great Neck on Long Island. Uh, and that's where I, that's where I lived until I went to college. Mm. And it was, it was there that really my, I think my, my questioning mind evolved. Uh -huh. And I was lucky, I was lucky to have just an incredible group of, of friends, uh, just really brilliant and, uh, you know, creative and, um, we are still friends. Hmm. Most of us. Uh, so how so? How, how did, what it, do you mean? How, how uh, did your questioning mind, uh, evolve? What, what, how did that start? Well, I think the way it started was, um, um, perhaps it was born in me. You know, perhaps it was a, a genetic or a cultural predisposition by being Jewish. Uh -huh. um, and also, by circumstance, um, I went to private school for the first eight years of my life. Uh, and it was a it was a very it was a pretty much white Anglo-Saxon Protestant dominated school. There were only like two Jewish kids in my class. <laughs> uh, and I was, um, you know, I, I felt marginalized. Oh. By, you know, by what was not, not usually, there was, there were some hints of overt anti-Semitism, uh, some from teachers, but just in terms of social exclusion, uh, I was never, I never felt included. And so I had to really sustain myself by my own interests and my own mind. Mm. Uh, and I was given tremendous freedom to, uh, to read anything or explore anything by, by my parents. They never told me what not to digest in terms of reading. Uh, and I read voraciously. I watched television voraciously. And at ninth grade, I went into the public school system in, in Great Neck, which was at the time, it was a very progressive, uh, very highly rated public school system. Uh, and it was also probably a majority Jewish. Mm. And I will say from that point on, I instantly had friends. And those are friends for life now, for 60 mm. years. Mm. You know, so so th there wasn't anything wrong with me socially. Um, I just, you know, I was in a difficult setting until mm. I got there. You know, I just want to make one comment. Um, I, you know, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. And I really didn't <clears throat> know much or hear much about anti-Semitism until uh i started uh, uh, i got involved in civil rights and sds and meeting people from the east coast and living in mexico and being in california uh 
where I grew up, the, the uh, uh, Jewish uh, students uh, were, to me, just seemed fully integrated and, you know, got into the social clubs and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I truly could say that uh, a lot of my best friends were Jewish when I grew up and well, one of my best be wives <laughs> later. Uh -huh. But but um, I just, you know, I'd read Exodus and I knew about I knew about uh, uh, anti-Semitism, terrible anti-Semitism, worse than that. But I just. You know, I, I just had like two memories of things that happened in my entire childhood. I knew there, there were some people that were, I just thought of them and, and my friends would have thought of them as ignorant, but it came up so little we didn't really even think about it. Um, right. So that was interesting. East Coast, once that started, being Jewish was just such a different thing for, uh, people that came from the East Coast. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just wanted so to that, say that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was, when I started going down south to play music, um, I was talking to, to an old friend from that scene, um, you know, and she said, this is, you know, this is 1940. 75, she said, well, we never met anybody Jewish before. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Mm. Um, so that was really, that was really, you know, cultural waters that I swam in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, not, not religious, but not religious waters. The yeah. problem there with the religion was, <clears throat> that I was forced to go to Hebrew school and it was horrible. <laughs> um, and it was a complete disconnect because there was no Jewish practice in my home, except when we went to see my grand, my grandparents in, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And my Jewish education was, was strictly to, you know, out of respect for my, for my mother's father. It didn't have anything to do with what what happened at home, so it was really that was also quite disconnected, and uh, that was interesting because I what I understood was that I had a an aversion to ritual mm. or any kind of religious thinking, and it wasn't until I really took up Zen that I realized that that was not the case, that I really loved the ritual so long as it had a meaning to me. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, all right, so you're back in uh, in college, when you say when your right. questioning began. Uh, what sort of questioning? Well, I was actually in high school when the questioning began. Oh, all right. Um, um, I mean, ultimately, the question is, what am I supposed to be, what am I doing here on the planet? 
Um, and also a lot of questions about um, how to look at the world. So one of the things that happened was from early in high school, I was interested in beat poetry. Yeah. And that and beat literature. And that led me to reading Chinese and Japanese poetry. Oh. Uh, and, and that was uh, really resonant with me and still is. Uh, and what was resonant was, you know, in this, this highly competitive environment that I existed in, in this, you know, upper middle class high school where everybody was kind of performance oriented. Uh, what I saw in the Chinese and Japanese poetry was an aesthetic that really, uh, really paid attention to what was ordinary and recognize that there's something transcendent in that ordinariness mm. uh, and that it wasn't about achievement. And that was a very, that was a wonderful medicine for me mm. to bring me into balance. Um, and so along with that, I mean, part of the other questioning was a very intense questioning of the social and political realities that we were living. So I, was, I became very involved in civil rights work in high school and then in other uh, in ban the bomb activities and then in other anti-war activities as they emerged. Mm -hmm. And that was also a through line uh, and still is. Mm. Uh, but the, but the, by the time I got to college, uh, I was really very much on an artistic track uh, at the same time as the political world was just on fire uh, and the country was on fire. And I had landed in a hotbed of it at Columbia. Uh, and so I was very involved in the uh, I became the editor of the Columbia Literary Magazine, the Columbia Review. Uh, but also, I was involved as it as it developed. Uh, I took part in the Columbia strike in the in the spring of 1968, and I was part of a a crew that lived in the president of the university's office for a week until we got beaten and arrested. Uh, and that was my education. So it was on this, this two tracks, these political and the artistic. Mm. And that summer I came out, we decided we had to get out of New York. Uh, and so we came out we got an apartment in Berkeley. And also at that point we decided having read three pillars of Zen uh, that we wanted to practice, we wanted to try practicing Zen. So we found the Berkeley Zen Center, which had 
been around for about a year. Uh, and through that, and so we, we practiced there on a quite a regular basis through the summer and a couple of days a week. Also, we would go in and sit at Sokoji. And that was the summer. And when I returned to New York, I returned with the, with the idea of continuing a practice of Zen. And, uh, I started studying Japanese, but the, the political realities were just, they were overwhelming. And at that point, it seemed like these are two quite distinct paths that, that did not intersect. Uh, and I hadn't really met the people for whom it did intersect. And there, there were around, you know, I mean, Gary Snyder was around Dick Baker to some extent. Uh, Aiken Roshi was, was around, but, um, I don't think he had begun teaching yet. But anyway, um, it wasn't until I re- till I really took up formal practice that I understood or I could see where the intersection was between uh, a social awareness or an awareness of, of social transformation and uh, the work of Zen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a capsulated story. Yeah. So um, uh, can you elaborate more on your last point? Yeah, um, there was not much, well, one of the things that happened when, you know, there was not much relationship, there was not much talk about uh, at, at Berkeley Zen Center was there or in Three Pillars of Zen or in anything that I was reading, which there was not a lot, you know, there was D.T. Suzuki and there was, uh, there were Paul Rep's books. Um, and there was Alan Watts, but none of them were talking about what we might now call engaged Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, which is not to say that uh, they didn't have uh, a social awareness, but they weren't really weaving these together. And yeah. I think in, in, in subsequent years, uh, it really was woven together here in this country and the fact of the matter is that it's been you know and this is one of the things that I'm that I'm teaching and learning at Union this year is what a rich tapestry of uh, social awareness uh, and what we might call engaged Buddhism has you know existed in Asia for uh, you know certainly from the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, And I think that really affected people, that affected people over here. But also people here were drawing from, they were drawing from the activities and syntheses of other religious traditions of Judaism, Christianity, etc., that were making similar Connections between social issues and spiritual issues. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know that but that I think of something there is uh that when uh, Diane Goldschlag came out in 68 it was Jim Forrest who sent her do you know who that is was is yeah do yeah yeah what what uh, what what's the name uh, and and he had brought he had brought Tick Not on to Tassahara right. in 67 uh right. And he was with the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Is that it? That's right. Ah, got it. He was with Fellowship of Reconciliation, which then became the, was kind of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship existed as one of those Fellowships of Reconciliation. Ah, ah, yeah. So when, when, when folks started that in, in 1978 in Hawaii. But it started actually as a chapter of Fellowship of Reconciliation, and then the uh, FOR said, why don't you start a Buddhist fellowship? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, fellowship of Reconciliation, I think its roots were more Catholic. Is that right? No. Um, no. Its roots, roots were were probably... Protestant pacifist. Oh, really? But it had, yeah, but it had, um, it had these different religious fellow religious uh, organ or religious organizations that were by denominationally independent fellowships. But I think the people there were people. Some of the Catholic activists were were very well known and were completely connected to FOR, like the Berrigans and, right. and others of the others of the the real active nonviolent um figures. Amazing people. Mm. And it wasn't a big world, so everybody knew each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hmm. The the earliest incident of that that I know of at Zen Center with Barton Stone in like sixty three or something, uh, uh, going on that march to Moscow from California with David wow. Dellinger. Is that his name? Yeah, Dave Dave Dellinger, right. And a group of others, and that's where he met Martha. Uh, and um, hmm, yeah, and they went all the way well, to Moscow. That's great. I didn't know that about about Barton. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Suzuki Roshi visited him in prison. He went to prison here for uh, uh, oh, it was a. Uh, a sort of weird charge getting in the way of nuclear weapons or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that uh, those people were, t- they were, they were really tough. They were strong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Richard Baker was involved in uh, some of the, God, I can't remember the, the details, uh, anti-nuclear, but before the nuclear freeze, uh, that, uh, 
much earlier, like in the 60s, uh, having to do with, uh, I don't know, it was um, over on the East Bay. Um, you know, uh, that would be an interesting thing to put together, get the details down on that. Uh, it's mm. probably, yeah, yeah. Well, you might ask him about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I will. I will. Good idea. So I sort of inherited all this stuff when I, by the time I showed up here to really establish practice, which is in 84, um, there was a real Buddhist peace fellowship presence and um, it so the center of gravity had moved from Hawaii basically to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, I got to know everybody. And then, uh, in 91, uh, I was hired as the director. Mm. And that was probably that and coming here were probably the two uh, primary catalysts for the life I have. Mm. I feel like that, that's when my life, those, those elements that have snapped my life into focus, that and meeting Lori. But meeting Lori was also connected to that, so. Hmm. How so? Well, um, I mean, I met her at Tassajara, so it was completely connected to, uh, to the practice, uh, and um, she always encouraged me. She and Sojin uh, totally encouraged me to uh, to really throw myself into Buddhist peace fellowship. Mm. Wow, you sure have. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, you know, really, a, a number of us really built the organization. It's now in a dormant state, but, you know, for, for a while it was, you know, it was, it's a very important network, a very important piece of history. Yeah. Uh, and it was important to us because <laughs> through you, uh, you said you had a contact in uh, Kuala Lumpur. And so we got right. to know, uh, uh, my and, uh, Vidya. And yeah, uh, yeah. he was very involved. And not only was he involved with, um, mm, uh, you know, with uh, what, what, pardon? With International Networking Based Buddhists. Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't know quite how to say it. I mean, Vidya was going to Burma to uh, talk with monks who were persecuting Muslims in Sri Lanka to talk to Buddhist monks who were persecuting Tamils. And I don't know if he went to Thailand to talk to Buddhist monks who were, uh, uh, you know, at odds with Muslims there. Um, but, uh, and, and I asked him, uh, I said, well, what on earth can you do? He said, well, really mainly just listen. <laughs> That's right. But we, you know, 
he was an early INEP friend and at a difficult point in his life, he showed up, he showed up unannounced on our doorstep and we took him in for months in our house. Oh, is that right? We were, you know, yeah, our house was really, our house became a way station for a lot of people traveling through. A mm. lot of people, monks, actually, uh, and lay people, lay men, lay women. And uh, we had two Tibetan refugees uh, living with us at different times. I had a saffron, we had a saffron revolution monk uh, from Burma living here. You know, it's like we've always, we've kept an open house. Wow. Me and Lori, me and Lori. And uh, we like that, you know. Yeah. We, it's been a, a great gift to be able to share our lives in that way. And pretty much, fortunately, our kids liked it, too. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, another person uh, I met through you, when Clay and I were in Pune in India, uh, we stayed at the uh, Dalit house, the, you know, Untouchables. You stayed at, you stayed at Minuski. Yeah. And uh, that was yeah. a connection through you. Um, and uh, that was really interesting. And we meditated with them and. Uh, he took us to a really interesting restaurant, and he, he brought out a copy of Crooked Cucumber and had me sign it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, hmm. And but you were just in Asia recently, weren't you? On some uh, Buddhist peace fellowship, I'm, something? No, it was it was INEB. Uh, international network of engaged Buddhists. We had a a conference in um, South Korea. Oh, and that was the first time I've been to South Korea. It was very interesting, really interesting, peculiar place. Oh, I love but, South Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was it was a wonderful conference. And then a whole lot of people ended up getting, including Vidya. Uh, we all we got COVID the last day. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was really fucked up. Oh. Oh. Hmm. And that was that wasn't that long ago, was it? When was that? You no, know, it was like the end of end of October. Yeah. Ah. Uh, wow. Hmm. Well, that. It brings up, uh, it make, makes me want to see them, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> we stayed in their school. Oh, great. Uh, right. And, uh, and we learned a lot about the problem, uh, between Chinese and, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Bumiputra, the native, uh, uh, Population there are the the preach you know the the Muslims. It was a little more it was more serious than anything uh, I experience here. Uh, you know. Well, it's interesting. Mo Malaysia is 
is what you would call a plural society, which is not which is different than pluralistic. Plural culturally, what it means is that you have these different groups, and they they interact very freely in the marketplace, but that's it. You know, there's there's commercial intercourse, but uh, socially, religiously, culturally, they maintain very independent identities. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, and, uh, you know, I think it's quite different from what at least we're trying to do here, uh, even though these separate identities do exist, but more and more there's the intersection and blending of them. But in in some places, uh, there's very little, in some places in Asia, and I'm sure other places, I'm sure in places in Africa, there's, there's very little interaction. It's just like a real, just very clear social distinctions. Yeah. Among the different, uh, different cultural ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, one interesting thing is, you know, there's, um, the, the Chinese, uh, in Malaysia tend to be better educated and, uh, you know, they're, they're better at business than the, uh, yeah. You know, the, I, again, I just think of Bhumi Putra, which sort of means, uh, uh, the children, the, oh, the, the, the Bhumi's earth and Putra is like, I don't know, like sun or something. I have to, I'm not quite sure. It, it just means like native sun, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. uh, I said to Vidya, I said, you know, it's really weird because he has really important government jobs and that uh, Chinese tend to get uh, overlooked for uh, anything the government hands down. Uh, Like Mm -hmm. students that go abroad, uh, it's um, much harder for Chinese students uh, that, that, that are excelling to, you know, be sent by the government abroad to study and stuff. But I said, uh, you know, Avinia was, at one point he was in charge of the dengue uh, response in Malaysia. And at another point, he was in charge of the sort of uh, assignment of everybody with like a social security number. Um, and uh, I said, how come... How come, I said, you're not Bumiputra. How come uh, you're, you're doing so well? He said, I'm more Bumiputra than the president. He goes to Indonesia to his father's grave. <laughs> well, he's a, he's a good person. Yeah. And smart. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, the long term, you know, does a long term friendships now. You know, thirty years or more. Wow. Hmm. We know each other's children, and we've watched them grow up, and it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
I want to go back to when you came to Zen Center in 1968 in the summer. Yeah. Uh, did you uh, see or meet or hear uh, Suzuki Roshi? No, he was at Tassahara. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, that, that's what I remember anyway. Well, he was. I don't remember. I I don't remember anybody. Basically, I remember Mel. Um, uh-huh. One of the things at that time, both both at uh, City Center and also at Berkeley Zen Center, you know, I didn't. I don't think I had any conversation with anybody. Yeah, and nobody, you know, nobody reached out to have a conversation with me, and. Uh, you know, I was shy and I was watching distance yeah. the in. Uh and you know, I have some regrets about that, but it's okay. Huh. That's yeah. what happened. Yeah. Well it was Sokoji, it wasn't City Center, like you said earlier. Yeah, city, uh, it was Sokoji. It was Sokoji. Yeah. Yeah, my first time at City Center. It's interesting. Uh my first time coming to City Center was I'm still living in San Francisco. Uh, I went there one evening. Uh, we were accompanying, musically accompanying Allen Ginsberg. Oh, neat. Uh, and, uh, I remember we were in the, in the, in the corner of, of what's now the Buddha Hall. We were set up there. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was my that was my my first time there, which probably was not so long after uh, it moved into that building. Oh yeah, I can believe it because they wouldn't use the Buddha Hall that way after it got well, established. It I think it, it wasn't the Buddha Hall. I don't think. Yeah, well, that's very early. So that was like in uh, maybe the. It moved into that building in November, like 19th or something of 1969. So, right, uh, this was probably in in 70 or 71. No, no, it it it, it would it would have been uh, within I think uh, within early 70 for the Maybe. Buddha Hall not to be the Buddha Hall yet. Well, maybe it was the Buddha Hall. I don't know. But anyway, that's where we were. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, generally, they do things like that in the dining room. Yeah, it wasn't the dining room. I remember, because I remember walking into the space, and then I remember walking into the space again later. So, anyway. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, we were functionally Alan's band for a little while. Mm. At least here in San Francisco. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, uh, well, when you so so you were out there in '68, and then you went back to Columbia, right? I went back to finish a year. Yeah. Yeah. And, one more year. And then, did you go right back? No. Then I moved to Woodstock to be in a rock and roll band. Oh. Really? Yep. Right after graduating in 69, 
my band moved up to uh, Woodstock. Wow. The summer of Woodstock. So were you at Woodstock? Nope. We had another gig someplace else. Oh. That weekend. And oh. it's okay. I mean, we all we read about was like horrible traffic jams and lots of mud. And that was not my idea of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's neat. Well, go on. Uh, so how did you get from Woodstock uh, to California? That was there. Well, I got fired from, I got fired from the band and moved back to New York city and worked for a year as a taxi driver. Oh. Uh, and uh, some of our, just a group of us who had been really tight in college had this idea of moving out to California and starting a, a magazine. Uh, and we did that. We moved out to San Francisco and we, published several issues of a, a very peculiar multimedia kind of magazine that was part avant-garde poetry, part underground comics. Uh, it had recipes. It had all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was a magazine that was called FITS, F-I-T-S. And... Mm. Uh, we published a couple of sort of tabloid editions of it, but we also were writing poems and putting out books. And somewhere along the line, we felt that we should uh, take control of the means of production. So uh, we went to printing school at uh, City College in San Francisco. It was a program run by some of the union printers in the city it was a really good program, and mm. we learned how to do small press work, and we set up, we bought two presses and set up a printing shop in the heart of the mission. Huh. Uh, and we, that shop, which was also called FITS, F-I-T-S, uh, continued for about... I don't know, six or seven years. Hmm. Uh, it moved. It moved its location and became, you know, sort of a pivotal, uh, uh, radical print shop uh, for movement functions in in the city. Huh. And so I learned to be a printer. I got quite good at it. Uh, but I was also staying. I was also, I was also playing music. And my marriage was breaking up, and uh, I had an opportunity to join a band that was in Ithaca, New York. Mm. And so um, I did that. I moved back east in the summer of 74, I think. Uh, and... That band lasted about a year. And the long story short, uh, I was invited by a college friend to be 
uh, a co-editor of Sing Out, the national folk song magazine. Oh yeah, in New York. So when the band, so when the band broke up, uh, I moved back to moved to Brooklyn, and uh, for four or five years I worked at uh, I worked at Sing Out. Oh yeah, I remember Sing Out. Sure, I sort of associated with the Weavers and. Uh, uh, um, Pete Seeger. Yeah, well, Pete was on was on the board, and I knew him. I mean, we, that was a great job, like like the job at BPF. I mean, I just got to meet everybody. Yeah, neat. I heard them when I was like senior in high school, or had just graduated from high school. They were playing it. TCU, Texas Christian University. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, that, you know, I was into, uh, that folk music stuff then. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. I loved it. And, um, and they were very, <laughs> they were very socially engaged. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's what the end of them was. They were blacklisted, basically. Yeah, yeah, and Woody Guthrie, they're sort of uh, a continuation of of Woody Guthrie's um, lineage or something in a way, wouldn't you say? Well, absolutely. They were con- really a continuation of uh, what existed as the Almanac Singers, uh, which dates from the early 40s. Um, yeah, it's all... So I know that history really, really well. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of a student of that as well. So you can see I've had a bunch of lives. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, you know, one thing I think of there is Lead Belly. Uh, yeah. Uh, he had a peripheral relationship to that, wouldn't you say? No, I would say he had a pivotal relationship to that. Oh, is that right? He was in that, he was in that circle. Oh. Um, with, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, I have a, I still have a bunch of records that predate, there are records on the Stinson label, um, uh, and they kind of document, they're not documentary, they're records, but they're, you know, you had you had Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and Pete Seeger, all these people singing and playing together. Oh my gosh! They they were on the same scene, and it was a left scene. Wow! Wow, that's you amazing. Know, yeah, um, and yeah, and Lead Belly to Lead Belly was like. When I started playing folk music, which was in 1961, uh, some of the first things that I heard, because the library in, in the town where I grew up had a, somebody had seeded a whole lot of Folkways albums to the, to the library. And so I just inhaled all this Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie stuff. Mm. And it's mm. all, it's all just completely, it's just 
imprinted on my brain. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, well, that makes me think of um, my sister uh, lived mm, a block up from the Tassajara Bakery. She was on Clayton, and uh, the home uh, she and her husband then moved into. Well, first it had Keen K, I think K E A N E, on uh, in uh, a, a copper plate. And the letters, the words were spelled out in holes on the copper plate. And, uh, it was, uh, Walter Keene, the, uh, the, the artist who did the big eyes, actually his wife did the big yeah. eyes, had yeah, lived right. there. But after that, uh, Bob Trueff and Jessica Mitford lived in that home. And, uh-huh. uh, uh-huh. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, and he was like, probably the best known uh, left-wing lawyer in the Bay Area, right. you know, and she was a well-known writer. And one night, Lead Belly slept in that home. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. Clayton Street also um, is where the San Francisco Folk Music Club was. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yep. Yep. Wow. And we knew we knew um, I guess it was Benji Truhaff, the son. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew Benjamin. Yeah. And Paul Disco, you know, was best friends with Benji when they were kids. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, Oh, yeah. I have to talk to Paul. Yeah. Uh, You know, Paul Paul is... uh, Paul has been sitting with us on Monday mornings. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And he, he... been coming and just sitting here, coming to Zazen on, uh, I think on Tuesday mornings. Yeah. Oh. So we're I'm in pretty regular contact with him. One of our residents is his assistant now. Oh, really? Really? Huh? Yep. yep. Huh? Well, Paul grew up in a uh, a uh, pretty much in a communist home, right? Uh, yeah. 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 And. Uh, uh, and then you have Lou and Blanche. I don't know if there was any uh, crossover there. But, um, yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, yeah, this is interesting to me. Uh, so, I'm gonna need to, I need to go soon. But maybe right. we're going to have to do part two or something. Yeah, we can do that. Look, uh, uh, why don't we do that? Because uh, there's more ground we can cover. Maybe it's only 30 minutes. But... Uh, you need to go because you're you're on the east coast you're you're still over there in Ithaca no no no, no I'm oh y- yes no I'm back I got, oh you're back and, no, oh, I moved back oh yeah and you'd start at the print shop and all that oh yeah all right no I'm I'm sorry yeah I got I got lost there and I remember now um right. so so wait a minute but we've only gotten we only got in 1976. Yeah. All right. So well, why don't we pick up there? Uh, you know, it, whenever uh, I can tell you, I'm a couple of months ahead on making the podcast. Uh, okay. Because I put up one a week. Uh, I'm not in any rush. Well, I think it would be better to do it soon. Uh, while, uh, oh, yeah. oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, 
So you just tell me when uh, this is the best time for me to call. You just tell me what this day. Is, I think next Monday is good, but let me confirm that and, write, and send you an email. Yeah, sure. So, like, since That'd be good for a week, me. A week later. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow, that was okay. really interesting. Is, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'd love seeing a picture of you with Maya. Oh, did we get a picture? Yeah. Facebook, yeah. Yeah. Did did we put it on Facebook or did she? Some she did. She did. Oh, I'm going to share it. Uh, okay. Yeah, we really enjoyed seeing her. It was really good. Uh, yeah, that's great. I was very impressed with her. Um, and yeah. I don't, you know, I I don't quite know what's happening with Zen Center with this. So many people at one level of seniority moving out. Uh, my experience with Maya was she, you know, she's got a really good, solid presence that would be, you don't want to move. It seems like it'd be good for her to stay longer. I also think it would be good for Reb to stay longer. Uh, he's not, I don't think he should go to any retirement home, but I don't know. I'm just from a distance. I, I really am not there. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not there either. So yeah, I, uh, I, I there's a lot I don't understand about the ins and outs of Zen Center. Right. <laughs> so let's talk next week. Okay. Very good. You take care. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Take care, David. Bye bye. So thank you very much, Alan Sanaka. That was good. Uh, yeah, that's uh, good for you. You haven't kept your head in the sand. Uh, yeah, very admirable. Um, oh, you know, I was mentioning all these people leaving Green Gulch. I heard recently that Reb Anderson and Linda Ruth Cutts and her husband, Steve Weintraub, are um, staying for a few more years. That's good. I I thought there should be staggered leave. And, yeah, staggered leave. That reminds me of a great old song. You remember that? Staggerly. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's good. Uh, um, and uh, Steve Weintraub, you know, had a terrible bicycle accident. You know, here he is. Uh, he's probably around my age. I don't know exactly. I'm 78. And he was riding, you know, he was preparing to join his son for this long, you know, probably hundreds of miles bicycle trip in Oregon. So he was riding from Green Gulch to Point Reyes, which is long Highway 1, you know, very windy roads, a lot of ups and downs. I mean, serious bike riding. You know, he's just out for a ride. So he's, he's I think he's, he's coming back, but I'm not positive about that, but I think Anyway, at some point, he was coming down a hill, pretty steep. You know, this two-lane road, cliffs on his right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then it swings. Uh, it made a sharp turn. And uh, uh, he, he he didn't make the turn. And so, he, you know, he skidded and he broke a bunch of stuff and, and punctured a lung. And... Uh, but he's okay. I mean, he's got an arm in a sling. He broke an arm, broke some ribs. If I recall, he broke six ribs. Uh, anyway, he's um, 
he's written a couple of uh, reports on how he's doing, and he's recovering well, you know, and his spirits were high, were high right away. He had to be helicoptered out of there. Uh, and, um, well, he might not have been helicoptered from that spot, but he was eventually over to Walnut Creek. I, I'm not sure. Anyway, he's, he's, he says uh, there's nothing that's going to, like, permanently disable him. It'll all heal. <laughs> that's good. Anyway, get well soon, Steve. And, um, hey, Alan, uh, onward, ho, continue the good work. This is D.C. Pooba of Cuke Archives and Cuke Audio, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggy Bandita, guest Doggy Boombita, Boom Boom, which means... Uh, Spice in uh, Indonesian. It's not Bumbu's real name, but you've probably heard me mention that. His name is Bumble. That's too hard for Indonesians to say, and we got a lot of them go through this house and are here during the day and stuff. So uh, our housekeeper immediately started saying Bumbu. So that's cool. And so um, anyway, Bumbu and Katrinka and Bondi and I, we're all wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. <laughs> 